What that teaches us is that the compassion of the Son of God upon His people, whom He loves maximally, His compassion is greatest when you are at your most simple. Now, doesn't that startle you? It speaks of something that is so intimately you, like bowels, something that's so internal and so synonymous with you, with your being, with your character. So God says, therefore, my heart yearns. Now, what's that word yearn? Yearn doesn't mean to love. Doesn't even mean to bless. Instead, the word here literally means agitated, turbulent. It's most often translated something like turmoil, like Psalm 43 and verse 5, or Psalm 46 and verse 3, the roar and the foam of the waters. Or 1 Kings chapter 1, when, it's, when, uh, when Joab says, he hears the trumpet and says, what does this uproar in the city mean? Uproar, turbulence, turmoil, roar. So God says, as far often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my inner, my bowels yearn. There's this turbulence in me. Is anybody seeing a connection? There's this deep turbulence in me. And that's the depth of my yearning for my son. Folks, this is speaking of a radical affection. God is describing a radically liberal affection for His people. An affection that, to be put into words, comes through the Scriptures in words speaking of your intestines, your deep inner bowels, and a roar and a turmoil in your bowels like the storm on a sea. And God says, that is the yearning that I feel for my true Son. So God is saying that in the depths of who He is, in the very depths of His beingness, there is a turbulence for His people, a yearning for His people that is so strong and so pure and so driving that God describes it in words such as this. So brothers and sisters, how how do you think of When you think of how God feels about you, what comes to your mind? You know that God loves you. You know that God sent His Son to die for you. You know that God cares for you. But when you think of God and specifically how God feels for you, do you have thoughts that come to mind that are that strong? that the strength of God's affection for you is so turbulent, such a roaring strength, that God will use metaphors and phrases such as this to describe His deep, strong, and radical affection for His people. So as God describes His innermost 
bowels turbulently longing for his people. Let's ask ourselves, if God, who is invisible, if he were to make that visible for us, if he were to show us what that looks like, what do you think it would look like? You don't have to guess. Because what it looks like is a carpenter from Nazareth looking about upon the people and saying they're like sheep without a shepherd. And down to my inner core, I'm so distraught over their misery. I'm so deeply moved that it's like my bowels have been experiencing a hurricane. That's what Jeremiah 31 and verse 20 would look like if it showed up on earth, which of course it did. Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan several centuries ago, wrote about this in a book that I would highly commend to you. It's called The Heart of Christ. And in that book, as is what is the way of the Puritans, is they would take one verse of Scripture or one sentence of Scripture and write a whole book about it and just, just not give up on it until they had squeezed out of it every bit of truth. And so he takes Jeremiah 30, 31 and verse 20. And he looks deeply into this and he comes to the same conclusion himself. He says, if we were to see Jeremiah 31, 20, it would be Jesus standing on the shore. Looking at people, looking at a crowd of people whom most of them don't believe in him. Most of them are just curious. John chapter 6, when John tells of this miracle, in that same passage, the next day, we're going to be told that many of them came back and Jesus says to them, I know why you're coming. You want some more food. I fed you yesterday. Will you want some more food now? Yet, Jeremiah 31 and verse 20, the God of such compassion looks out upon the people, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd and is so moved in his spirit. Now, Jeremiah 31 and verse 20 is speaking about God's affection for his people. Jesus is looking out upon a group of people that are both His people and not His people. So we do understand that. But nevertheless, God's compassion for all people, both His called out people and not His called out people, His compassion is so deep and so profound that this is how it's presented to us. So the compassion of Jesus is one of the most profound realities of the Scriptures. Now, Goodwin goes on in his book to begin fleshing out what compassion is. What is compassion? He, he uses the word pity, which centuries ago, you know how words and languages sort of change over time. For us, the word pity carries with it sort of a condescension, sort of a condescending kind of a, a tone to it. For us, compassion works better. But, but what Goodwin does is he, is he asks, what is this thing, pity? What, what is compassion? What, what is compassion? And he rightly says that compassion is this. Compassion is when two powerful things intersect. And those two things are love and misery. 
when love and misery come together. He says that's compassion. When the object of your love is experiencing misery, what Goodwin says is that's compassion. And he goes on to say the more you love the object, the greater compassion you will feel. Likewise, he also says the more misery that the object of your love is experiencing, also the more compassion you'll feel. I drew for you a real nice diagram. You can thank me for that later. But you can see how as love increases, the capacity for compassion increases. And while misery increases, the, com- the capacity for compassion also increases. So that if you were to say one who loves most and the object of that love is experiencing the most misery, well, that's the most compassion right there. Does that make sense? I think that makes perfect sense to me. So now Goodwin takes this and he applies this to the compassion of Christ. And he says, we already know one thing. We already know that Jesus loves us with maximum infinite love. He tells us this. John 13, greater love has nobody ever had than to lay down their life for another. Now, maybe somebody might lay down their life for a good man, but nobody lays down their life for bad men. I lay down my life for my enemies. I lay down my life for those who hate me. Greater love has never existed. Or Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, where we're told that God's people are the object of His love since the foundation of the world. Greater love doesn't exist. So Jesus loves us with perfect, infinite love. He cannot love us more. God cannot love His people more. It's impossible. When you are loved with perfect love, you can't say, can you just love me a little bit more? So Jesus' love for the people, for His people, is already infinitely maximum. Now, let's think about the misery of His people. You know, when we think about God's compassion on His people, isn't it really easy or intuitive to think of God looking down upon us in our miserable conditions and having compassion upon us when our misery has to do with suffering. Maybe we're sinned against. Maybe people in our life sin against us and they bring misery upon us. Or maybe just life in a fallen world with broken bodies and broken world around us and the misery that comes from that. Isn't it really intuitive to think of God being compassionate upon the objects of His love when the objects of His love are suffering from the sin of others, or maybe their own bad decisions, or just living in this world? Isn't that really easy and intuitive? Here's the counterintuitive part. Goodwin goes on to say, well, what is the condition of humankind that is the most miserable of all? And Goodwin rightly says, the most miserable condition of mankind is their sinfulness. You agree? that our sin is the thing which brings upon us the greatest misery. So here's the counterintuitive part. What that teaches us is that the compassion of the Son of God upon His people whom He loves maximally, His compassion is greatest when you are at your most sinful. Now, doesn't that startle you? 
because intuitively we would think of how God thinks of us in our times of fallen sinfulness, in those times in which we fail Him so obviously and so blatantly. We would think of those times as God looking down upon us in frustration and irritation and, oh, just come on, get with it, would you? Why do we think that way? Because that's how we are. That's how we love others. But the counterintuitive part is that for the objects of God's love, that which causes you greatest misery is that which evokes from Him greatest compassion. And folks, that is not something that any human would ever think up. No human would ever think up an idea of God that goes like that. Because all of our ideas of God are ideas that are fashioned after us. But God is not like us. God is able in His perfection to separate the sin that He hates because God has a hatred for our sin. Let us not let the compassion of God deceive us into thinking He does not hate our sin. He does. But the perfection of God's character allows Him to perfectly separate the sin that He hates from the object of His love which He loves infinitely and has placed His love upon eternally in such a way that we all need to reverse how we think of how God thinks of us. That in those times of greatest failure, in those times in which we are ashamed to pray because we haven't prayed in six weeks, in which those times at which we don't even want to open our Bibles because frankly we don't remember where we stopped two months ago. And those times in which we've missed the gathering of God's people three Sundays in a row and now we're starting to get embarrassed about it going back. Those are the very times in which our fallen hearts will try to say to us, God is frustrated, God is irritated, God is tired of this. But the compassion of Jesus says to us, no, those are the times that His heart is most reaching out to you. Those are the times in which His compassion for you is most vivid. Those are the times in which His affection for you is most tangible and strongest. And that is something, folks, the only way we know that is that the Scriptures tell us that. That's why we need a Bible. Because only by the truth of our Bibles and the work of the Spirit within us can we understand such things about God which go directly against the grain of fallen human thinking. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. I wish I had time to read all of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because all of it is about this concept, but just the, the crux of it right here in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul says to the Corinthians, God has given you things and He's given them to you freely and you aren't even able to understand what He has given you unless He Himself comes and dwells in you and opens your mind to even know what He's done for you. 
So we cannot even begin to understand the nature, the counterintuitive nature of Jesus' compassion for His people without the Spirit coming to us and opening the eyes of our heart and showing us the Scriptures and saying, this is the nature of God's compassion for His people. Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. And Paul uses more words here, but he's describing the same thing. What the hope is, what he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He uses a lot more words there, but he's describing the same thing. That which God has freely given you, you can't even grasp it without the work of the Holy Spirit and without your Bible. So right now, in your seat, what you should do is you should repent of thinking such low thoughts of God. You should repent and ask God to forgive you for thinking of His affection towards you as something like your affection towards other people. Because it's not. And you should ask God that the Spirit would powerfully come to your heart and show you how His compassion and His favor towards His people is of a totally different nature than we even understand in our fallen natures. Forgive us for thinking low thoughts of such a high and mighty God. This is why we need our Bibles, because natural man cannot understand such things. 